Hello and welcome to WMQ&A. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week, we're joined by the creator of Princeless, writer of Unstoppable Wasp, and the new school for extraterrestrial girls from Paper Cuts, Jeremy Whitley. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thank you, guys. Glad to be here. Uh, so I hear you just took a little vacation. How was it? Um, I feel like in, in this in this moment, as, as good as can be, and, you know, sure. the summer of 2020, like, yeah. basically... You know, we, as a, a family, went up to, you know, the beach and I hung out with my, my parents and my children and my wife and my brother for a bit. So uh, mostly we were, we did the same things we do here, but in a house that was by the beach. And then, you know, we made a couple of stops by the actual beach and stayed a great distance away from everybody, which I try to do at the beach anyway. So <laughs> now are we talking uh, Outer Banks? Yes. We're uh, uh, down in Avon. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Jer- Jersey Shore uh, at the beach, it's, it's very hard to uh, stay away from people sometimes. And I remember there was one day this summer, you know, we found a spot that was actually, you know, a fair distance away from, from people and, you know, the, but still, you know, within the area of the lifeguard stands that the kids can go in the water. As soon as we put our things down, ice cream man shows up. Like oh, no. literally six inches from me, let alone six feet. <laughs> so there's that. But we're not here to lis- listen to uh, people's bad behavior at the beach. Uh, we are here to talk about your new uh, graphic novel, School for Extraterrestrial Girls, uh, book one, Girl on Fire, uh, with artist uh, Jimmy Noguchi, uh, color assist by Shannon Lilly, and lettering by Wilson Ramos Jr. Um, what is the, uh, what's the elevator pitch for this book? Um, basically, it's about a, a young girl named Tara Smith who uh, is sort of lives this very structured life. Her parents sort of always keep her uh, on schedule and under wraps. She doesn't have any friends or activities or anything like that. She's just strictly school and, and home uh, until one day she accidentally breaks this routine and uh, suddenly bursts into flames <laughs> and uh, discovers that she's uh, – or she wakes up uh, – in a, a government facility to find out that she is a, an alien living on earth. Um, and she is given the option of either being shipped off to another planet uh, or attending the school for extraterrestrial girls, which is a, a government run black site facility where, you know, uh, she can finish out her high school, but also we'll learn about, uh, you know, the rest of the, the rest of the universe and uh, live with other uh girls from other planets and uh, get a chance to, um, you know, explore her, her abilities and her history and things like that. Um, how long have you been uh, working on this project? Obviously, you know, with a graphic novel, there's more lead time than, you know, a regular floppy, both in terms of creation and promotion and all that stuff. This one's been around for, for a while, for years even, because it was, uh, it was a concept I had for a bit that was just sort of cooking on the back burner. Um, and then I met Jamie Noguchi at uh, the American Library Association show, ALA, uh, probably about three or four years ago now. Um, and, you know, we were booth next to each other and uh, uh, my, my daughter stole some of his art supplies and uh, was, was drawing things for him all weekend. Um, we got to know each other pretty well. And uh, started hanging out at shows, and finally I was like, "Hey, you want to do something together? Like, draw something, I'll write it." 
and uh, I just gave him basically like, here's a couple of things that I've, you know, had cooking that I haven't done anything with. And uh, this was the pitch that he saw and was like, yeah, I want to do that. I want to, you know, draw lots of cool, weird alien designs and uh, do all that stuff. And mm -hmm. so basically we've been like, we've had it around pitching the first couple pages for, for a couple of years. And it almost had a home at a couple of different places, but uh, Paper Cuts was finally the place that like my, my agent sent what we had and they were really excited about it and they wanted to, you know, Right off the bat, they were like, "Yeah, let's do three books at least." Um, so, <laughs> yeah, that was that was the one that I was like, "All right, they they're into it. They want to do this. Let's let's do it." Yeah, I mean, it seems like your work is kind of right in their wheelhouse. Is that they're mostly an all ages publisher to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they're they're big fans of Princeless over there. They they love you know, sort of what I do, and they um, have been. You know, sort of expanding as a publisher and doing a lot of you know middle grades and, and YA stuff, um, and they they really uh, know that market and pursue that market in a way that uh, I think unfortunately you know a lot of companies that I've worked for don't. <laughs> yeah, talk about that in a little bit, but yeah. So, how much as you got deeper into the book of the designs for the different aliens did you? give Jamie and how much did you just say okay alien this one's big this one's fairy like this one's feline and go to town um so I, I think uh you know we had in the script sort of the basics of of what the different species were that you know um Sako is uh is a fairy because you know i wanted to have sort of this uh element of fantasy in the sci-fi there as well um you know have her be sort of a, a fairy character and then um tara i didn't have a lot in mind as far as what she would look like other than kind of lizardy was i think what i gave <laughs> him on that one and then um i you know the other i think the other three main girls the two cat sisters and then Summer were probably the ones I had the most kind of specific idea of what I wanted because I, I wanted Summer to be very much like two elementally different appearances, you know, for her as a, as a human to look like what she is like on the inside. And then, you know, when she is, uh, <laughs> when she is in her sort of alien form for it to be, uh, unexpected and difficult to get over, uh, you know, see, seeing what she looks like and, and putting that together with, uh, with what her personality is like. Um, but then I think, I think the most specific, uh, image I, I gave Jamie is, uh, is Kat who, uh, I was like, yeah, I just, I basically want her to be like, a uh, a, a teenage female Garfield, like this, you know, <laughs> Sort of human-sized, orange, just uh, you know. Hates Mondays. <laughs> yeah, she hates Mondays. She she both makes an allusion to hating Mondays and eats lasagna in this comic. So what else can you ask for? As someone who who is a cat person and and loves his cat, the idea of my cat being human-sized and able to talk <laughs> is terrifying. It is. 
elemental terror in a wonderful sort of way. <laughs> yeah, and there's definitely a point where I think the first time I, I saw a scene where like Cat is like pointing, I was like, "Ooh, that's a little, that's a little weird." But <laughs> I was like, "All right, let's go with it." I can't, I can't conceivably have her just have paws all the time when she because she's all she's almost always in cat form mm-hmm. in the story. So um, that's that's interesting because I, I feel like when we were coming up with those two sisters. Uh, Cat and Venislava, I was like, I want them to be basically the two type of cats. Like, you know, uh, you know, cat is very, you know, um, interested and in your face and on top of you and not letting you sleep and uh, everything. And Venislava would rather you didn't talk to her. <laughs> would rather you left her alone. She's not interested in pets. She's just that kind of cat. You know? So Matt, which of those is, uh, is Bess? Oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Bess is type A. Bess is, hello, 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 I'm Bess, hello, hello. Now, Felix, our old cat, he was type B. He was like, I will wander in when I feel like it, and I will wander out when I feel like it. So the cats that are only ever interested in the people who don't want to pet them. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- that was often the way he could be. Oh, my big fat buddy. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, we'll, we'll, there will be slightly more cat talk later on because I can't resist it. Uh, but for the moment, back to the book. Um, so the it seems like A, if not the major theme in the book is self-acceptance uh, with Tara having to learn to accept what she is and how different her world is. And this isn't the first time, I mean, in Princeless, Adrienne has had to deal with that, especially in that tremendous, uh, the prologue issue to volume five, the zero issue, which is one of the most memorable issues of that series. What is it about that theme of self-acceptance that kind of keeps moving you back to it? I think it's, um, I think it's as universal a theme as there is. Like, I think everybody, regardless of, of what they look like or, or what they feel like or where they come from, just has a time in their life when they're like, man, what the hell is my deal? <laughs> What's wrong with me? You know, why, why can't I figure this out? Why, why is it things so hard for me and not for other people? Um, and I think, for me, I think it's a powerful message to, to put out there, especially to, you know, teens going through this, which I, I feel like everybody as a teen at some point deals with it. Like, it's not just you. Like, it's everybody. Everybody deals with it. Everybody deals with it separately and in their own way. But, you know, in, I think in knowing that you're not alone, there is a certain amount of, of power in that. Um, and that was, that was a big thing for me um, in, in this one, especially along with like, uh, you know, accepting other people, this, this idea that, uh, I think it's popped up a couple times in things I've written recently of, of they're just not, of they're not being any monsters. Like there are no monsters. Everybody is just trying to figure shit out themselves, you know? Yeah. And then sometimes, sometimes people who are hurt, hurt other people in the process of trying to get through their own thing. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that in some of the stuff that went on with uh, Prince Devon in that last couple volumes of Princeless, too. 
with the, the fairies and the wolf folk. Or the elves yeah. and the wolf folk. There, there's a lot of, of, you know, kind of taking typical uh, high school tropes, uh, you know, in this book and, and flipping them on their ear. There's a panel early on that I kind of studied for a little bit. Uh, you know, we're still getting to know Tara and, and we're establishing the importance of routine uh, to her, you know, uh, pre-alien uh, life. And she's in school, she studies, she's got her head down and behind her, uh, you see on one side of the panel, this like green haired, like she Hulk of a girl uh, is threatening a boy. And then on the other side, uh, two boys are making out. Uh, and then later on, there's this just kind of throwaway line uh, that uh, where Tara says about Misako, uh, you know, it's a line about her not being a, a good student which I, I felt was like interesting because it was like, okay, well, well, Misako presents as, as Asian, but we're not, you know, we're, we're going out of our way to say, you know, it doesn't mean she's a good, you know, good student, you know, just taking a lot of these kind of things that we see in, in high school culture over the last kind of 30, 40 years and, and, and kind of turning them all on their ear, you know, were there a lot of sort of conscious decisions to make those moves or, you know, was it stuff because a lot of these were like background bits and in, in panels that Jamie was drawing, you know, they came back to you and you were like, Ooh, cool. Uh, it's a good combination of both. I think, um, because I, I'm pretty, I think my original description of, of those first few pages is pretty vague as far as what's going on behind her, other than that. It's just sort of like, chaos and she's in this sort of stasis almost of just just trying to get through it just keeping her head down and you know going to school and going home and going to school and going home um and there's just this this noise of high school behind her the whole time mm -hmm. and uh jamie did some some really interesting stuff with like you know who he put in those panels and and what they're doing um and I think it was definitely, as far as Masako goes, there was definitely a choice there of, um, you know, wanting to to undermine some of those tropes that are there, um, and at the same time wanting to present somebody who's you know quite a bit different from Tara, and that you know Tara is very studious. She is you know incredibly mm -hmm. smart and on top of things, and uh, but almost entirely from an academic sense, she has very little like. Uh, social intelligence whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Masako is, is much more like she can deal with you know just about anything, but she uh, is is not great at the school side of things. Sure. The only the only thing in the school that she's really interested in is is you know figuring out how to use her magic and her fairy stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, overall there there are there it's it's a light story but there are you know there you do see sort of heavier heavier elements that are like seeded through you know because you've got you've got this story and it's it's centered on uh a a a black girl or a black presenting girl uh who's raised to be an overachiever uh, and but also blend into society you know you've got immigration elements with all the different aliens you've got the 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 self-realization themes uh you know that we talked about a little bit you know and prioritizing that over assimilation um you know it's got a little bit of a an xavier school for gifted youngsters vibe but ultimately you know it is this 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 light story about teen girls you know coming terms with 
coming to terms with their identity and, and coming together. Um, you know, how consciously did you have to, when you're working with all these themes, you know, were you kind of going out of your way to kind of keep the story from getting bogged down by them at all or? Um, I, I did. That was, that was a concern for me. Um, just because I, I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be fun. I, I don't mm. want people to start reading it, uh, especially since it is aimed at a, you know, younger audience. I didn't want people to start reading it and just be like, ah, oh, this, <laughs> I don't want to deal with this. Um, but I, I think, I, I learned something, I think, through writing Princeless in that uh, I think trying to tackle those big themes on a grand level is very difficult. And I think it, it is much more interesting and in some ways much more important when you, you just tackle them on a personal level. Mm-hmm. When you, know, you, you deal with what the characters are actually dealing with and you don't try to make a grand statement, you just let the let the things that they're going through speak for themselves. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think no matter how good and light and fun of a day all of us have, there are, you know, always things bubbling underneath, whether they be our, our own anxieties or other things happening in our world. Um, so, you know, I, I try to mix all those things in and let them speak for themselves um, in, in much the same way I think I have done in, in some of Princeless and that I did a lot, I think, in Wasp. Um, I I feel like I I learn a little bit every time I, I write one of these big things that uh, you know it, it teaches me a little bit how to write the next thing. That's been uh, sort of you know constantly figuring out how to how to say the big things I want to say without just laying them out there. Mm-hmm. Um just thinking about, you know, the fact that this school had a self-realization class, which, you know, without kind of go, it just teaching, teaching these girls, these extraterrestrial girls who they are, and also, you know, showing their classmates who they are. Uh, you know, the more that I think about it, the more I think about how a class like that, that seeks to help teens understand themselves and each other's differences would be actually a hell of a thing to have in real schools you know once school's a place that's legitimately <laughs> safe to be again uh. yeah. <laughs> no that's a whole other one yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i mean honestly I, I think um it's it's funny because there are things in this comic that like naming the class self-realization that you know is sort of tongue-in-cheek in the context of the book of like you know, even even the schoolmistress says like uh, she insists on calling it self-realization, um, and you know that that feels heavy-handed. Um, uh, I I don't think that's a horrible idea um, to you know expose kids to the the sorts of things that you know the people around them might be going through um, earlier on than you know college, which is I think when when that tends to actually happen. Because you're, you know, living next to those people, and you're like, oh well, other people do actually deal with different things in their day to day life. Um, on on the on the whole, you know, kind of looking at your 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 career, you know, from Princess to Wasp to to now School for Extraterrestrial Girls, 
you know, it does always see, you know, it, it seems like you, you're, you're always looking to kind of make that content that, you know, something your daughters would want to read. Um, what do your daughters like to read? <laughs> um, it's funny. I, uh, I was giving Ryan North a hard time at one point because I was like, yeah, I, I write comics constantly that I'm trying to aim towards my daughters. And, uh, the most part, they're not interested in Wasp, but boy, do they eat up Squirrel Girl. Um, <laughs> I, uh, Squirrel Girl was, was uh, Zuri, my older daughter's favorite the whole, whole time it was coming out. Um, she reads a lot of uh, Raina Telgemeier stuff, including the uh, you know, Babysitter's Club graphic novel adaptations they did. Mm -hmm. um, she was writing and drawing at first. Um, she uh, reads a lot of like the, the scholastic type graphic novels, you know, aimed more for kids her age. Um, she's uh, a big fan of um, all that. She's she's just now starting to get into uh, fantasy and D&D stuff. So nice. She's been, yeah, she's been uh, playing that with with my family uh, over over Zoom during all of this. Um, and she also got the uh, she also got the, the books that Jim Zub wrote for Wizards of the Coast that are sort of introductions for, you know, young players just just getting into it. So she's been she's been working her way through those, and we've been uh, trading off graphic novels, and uh, she's been putting her graphic novels up on my shelf, and you know, borrowing some of mine as well. So nice. I try to I try to steer her in the right direction, the ones that she should have away from you know preacher and yeah. Uh, <laughs> More towards the the stuff that's a little more age appropriate. Sure thing. <laughs> does does she have like her own like D and D character? Kinda? I was about to, I was curious what she was playing as an introductory character. Uh, she is. Uh, what is the? I can never remember the name of this race. The cat people. Oh, um, um yeah, I know the ones the you're people. talking about, and I cannot remember what they are. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm going to think of it at some point and just like shout it because Blurted that's what out, I yeah. always do is like yeah. <laughs> an hour later, I'm like, Oh, it was this thing. That's what it's called. Um, <laughs> I bet you the, it's on my D and D beyond account. Hold on. I can. Yeah. Um, is she a caster or going with something a little more fighty fighty and thus, often easier for a first time player. Uh, she's been a rogue actually. Mm. She's uh oh yes. Uh, her her cat person is uh called Lily Battle Tears. Nice. Um, uh, she is a yes, a tabaxi. Yes. She's a tabaxi rogue. Yes. Um, so yes, yeah, I for her little for her little player picture on here, I gave her a Catra, actually. <laughs> so. Nice. Are, are you playing two, or is it just she's joining in with other family members? Yeah, I'm, I'm playing. My, my dad is DMing, and uh, I and my wife and my older daughter, Zuri, and then um, my, my brother, his girlfriend, and my mom are all playing. It's kind of a That's big party. Awesome. But yeah. Yeah, we've been playing over uh, over you know hangouts every every Wednesday night during uh, during all this. So, yes, I am a uh, 
I am a half orc monk. So. Okay, that's funny. I am currently also playing a half orc monk. Um, my my group does Thursday nights. Although we're in a world where orcs are incredibly rare, so they we reskinned half orc to half dwarf, but mm. it's still it's using the half orc template. Uh, and this this week I'm about to do something that is either going to be completely brilliant or is going to lead to an almost immediate death uh, because the, at the and pardon everyone for this tangent, but I, I I've been dying to tell someone this and I can't tell anyone because my wife is a player in the campaign too. And so I can't tell her. Um, but at the end of our last session, one of the players broke out a deck of many things, which if you're out there, don't know what this is. It's this deck of, tarot type cards where each card has a game effect and some of them are great somebody pulled one and it's like you get a keep the keep is yours all the legal documentation is there it belongs to you one of them is hey gain a level uh at the end i drew a card and it was the skull basically the grim reaper appears and you must fight the grim reaper and if the grim reaper wins you die and there's no way to resurrect you which is bad it's very it's a real cool. bogus journey situation <laughs> thank you that's exactly where i was going <laughs> yes but so <laughs> thank you because what i'm about to do is uh we're playing in ravnica and so everyone which is a, a setting that comes originally from magic the gathering and they did a DD port to it and so everyone is a member of a guild and my character is a member of the nature guild, Selesnia. And every member of Selesnia plays a musical instrument. So at the beginning of this session, I'm reaching into my handy haversack, pulling out my clarinet and challenging death to a clarinet off. And I'm going to argue that as the Grim Reaper has neither lips nor lungs to properly play a woodwind, that death must roll with disadvantage on its perform checks against me. I don't know if it's going to work. My DM is just enough of a maniac. I think he will absolutely go for that. And so I am either going to challenge death to a clarinet off or the Grim Reaper is simply going to take his scythe and, you know, kill me on the spot. <laughs> but I think it's worth a shot and it's a, a better way than fighting the Grim Reaper to the death <laughs> with my bare hands. We, we might have to do another D&D episode at some point after yeah. listening to that. Yeah, that's the kind of things you can run into when you have decided, okay, it's, it's yeah. I'll, I'll have to go back to my backup character, who is a Loxodon, the big elephant man, elephant species. He's an elephant man necromancer. He's a lawful good necromancer. He, he summons the dead to fight evil because I have to go for the unexpected i think so far the 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 craziest thing i've done in our game was uh because because my character is a monk uh we we came upon a uh group of of uh guardsmen who were clearly bandits um and were trying to uh shake one of our party down for for gold for protection and uh, I just wandered into the group and started proselytizing about the glory of tear to people. Um, and at the point that uh, 
the guy finally decided to to draw his sword. I was standing in the middle of their group and used my uh, Fist of Five Thunders, which is a thunder wave out from the middle, just sent horses and bandits flying in every direction, which uh, nice. I was like, it's like, well, I'd killed three of the guys, two of the guys ran off, uh, it's just the one guy left. It's like, <laughs> all right, how about that protection? Yeah. What's going on there? <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> So since we're already in sort of tangent territory, I'm going to stick to uh, one of our favorite WMQ uh, tangents. Uh, we've already discussed that there is a feline alien species in this book. Do you currently have any cats or other pets? I do not. I am very allergic to cats and mildly allergic to a lot of dogs. So, um, which is, is funny because I grew up with cats in my house. Um, my parents, my mom always has cats. Um, and then I went to college and I came back and I was like, oh, this is why I always had a cold in high school. It just turns out that I'm allergic to cats, okay. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, we don't currently have any pets. Uh, I did just spend the, the week at the beach with uh, my, my Neff dog, who is a, uh, a, a big, adorable uh, mud of a dog who, does does his damnedest to talk. Um, <laughs> uh, his name is Fable, and if you you ask him a question, he will almost invariably go. Aww. Oh, oh wow! He's sure he's saying something. He's <laughs> very engaged in the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, Always. Well, I will say, uh, all allergies aside, uh, I do I do love. Uh, cat she may be my favorite character in the book uh and the the sweatshirt that she wears toward the end was uh <laughs> an excellent is, choice i can't take credit for that that's all of jamie uh those those pages came back and i was like all right let's see let's see if they sign off on that one <laughs> that's that's been that's a that's my stance for a lot of art that comes comes back to me is like i love it Let's see if the publisher lets it go through. <laughs> sure. Yeah, Swing this, for the fences. Yeah, that happens quite a bit on My Little Pony stuff because, you know, somebody will, a Andy Price will send me something and I'm like, ha, there's no way that Hasbro's going to sign up on that. And every once in a while they do and I'm like, all right, I guess. Let's do that. There, I remember there's a whole arc that we did, um, Andy and I, it's called Siege of the Crystal Empire. And, uh, I introduced this new kind of pony that was like a shadow pony. And I was like, oh yeah, it looks kind of, uh, you know, like a scary, not all there shadow horse. And um, I got the art back from Andy and uh, he definitely drew evil horse skeletons in this book. Um, <laughs> And they they look like straight up terrifying like horse skeletons with the whole big horse skulls made of like black fog and I was like, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> There's no way Hasbro's gonna let that fly because that scares me. I'm gonna have nightmares about that thing. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, that was like the one story that every every bit of art we sent in came back from Hasbro like no notes. And I was like. Okay, go for it, man. I, I, the the My Little Pony franchise—they have 
I, I, every now and then there's something I read and it's like, really? There's an issue early on in the run that was one of the, I had to look it up for a second there, that Katie Cook wrote, where there's a freaking quantum leap shtick throughout the, and I was like, I mean, really? Where we're doing that in here? Okay. <laughs> Andy has a, a recurring uh, Magnum PI pony that he likes to throw in things just to be in the background of, of stuff going on in there. There's there's all kinds of Andy is a sucker for like old 80s TV references and anytime you read anything that he's drawn there's just all sorts of shit going on back there that uh, I guess it's just what he does to keep saying is he just you know, throws references to Airwolf in the background of comics. <laughs> yep. He, he he did indeed draw the issue where one of the ponies, Sam Beckett, jumped it, leaped into it, and you can see the pony, um, Al Pony, I'm losing my mind with the name, uh, Dean Stockwell, Al Pony, hologram there. And I was like, wow. Just wow. Yeah, I... <laughs> I've gotten a better sense for what I can get away with in them over the years. Um, I, I love making little strange references. I mean, literally the first issue I did, I pitched as uh, uh, a story with Discord and the Cutie Mark Crusaders, which for anybody who hasn't seen the show, Discord is voiced by John Delancey in the show. And um, the thing about the Cutie Mark Crusaders is they're always trying to figure out what they're good at and they're not able to, uh, to do it, so they bounce from thing to thing. So they make friends with Discord, and Discord's like, all right, let's up the ante on this a little bit, since he has basically these reality-altering powers. And he's like, all right, I'm going to let you, we're going to try things that wouldn't even be possible. So they start showing up in all these weird scenarios. They're racing cars and um, things like this. There's a there's a whole Mighty Morphin Power Rangers bit in there. Um, but my favorite one is at one point he snaps, and uh, they're on the bridge of the Enterprise. And... Um, the you know the three of them are doing bits uh you know one of them wants to separate the saucer from the rest of the ship and one of them is arguing with a, a giant cat alien uh over the uh over the screen um but then discord shows up in the background to to pop into this story and uh, he is in full q regalia regalia and i was like I, I, even as i wrote it i was like there's no way they're gonna let this through is there like they're they're gonna say something about it. They they just they let it on through. the The references never stop in that. So the, the Hasbro IDW books let some let some crazy shit fly. I, I mean, just if you look at like the whole like more than meets the eye, Lost Light era of Transformers, and just like Paul Aller's GI Joe series where they just killed Duke in the first issue. Like, they, they I I mean, I respect them for taking those chances. Um, I want to go back to the Magnum PI pony for a second, though. <laughs> are, are we talking about like, is this a pony wearing like a floral print shirt and like like tiny jean shorts with a mustache, like full full mustache? Yeah, <laughs> he's got the floral print shirt and everything. I don't know if he has the shorts because there's not a lot of pants on ponies in general. Sure. But uh, <laughs> for good reason. Yeah, he's definitely got the the floral shirt. It's yeah, it's a it's a wonder to behold. That's amazing. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to find that at some point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I also have uh, a bit in one of my. I wrote a story that has no dialogue in it, which is a real task. But I, I 
set it around the the ponies' pets, none of whom can uh, canonically talk in the um, in the show. Um, so I was like, all right, I'm going to have them have a whole adventure where nobody talks and we act everything out through the whole thing. Um, and uh, <laughs> at one point, uh, Angel Bunny, who's, who's Fluttershy's pet, is is uh, putting together a plan for a thing they're trying to do. And uh, he is in, in full-on patent gear with a, a you know pointer pointing at this chalkboard with you know the plans written on it and flipping it over and, and doing a whole patent march across the front of the panel as, as he's going through. Uh, Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess almost sort of kind of on the same topic, since we're talking about Cat, uh, one of the things that's also cool about Cat is that Cat learned everything about Earth High School through those, through, you know, WB-esque, teen dramas so uh you were able to use this one character to either play straight and call out or hang a lampshade on, on all of those high school tropes uh was that just something that you thought would be fun or was it just kind of like you know this was there a store a driving story purpose there or just it was fun to have someone going drama <laughs> and to break that tension <laughs> yeah I'm honestly not sure what order I decided to do these things in. Um, but Kat was always going to be funny. She was always going to be the, you know, the one who isn't uh, all twisted up inside with teen anxieties that she's just, um, she's just there for the show uh, just to some extent. Um, and, and I, I think at some point I, I figured out that, uh, you know, Having her literally see it as a show, seeing you know, everything that's going on there is sort of this uh, acting out of the, the teen drama that she'd seen on TV um, made a, a brilliant sort of sense to me. Um, of like, oh yeah, this is a, a great way that we can sort of have our cake and eat it too, because uh, we can do the teen drama things that we need to to drive the story forward while having Kat go, ah, that's that thing. That's the thing from the, the show that I saw. You're doing a thing like that, which um, I, I've, Jamie is drawing book two right now. I've, I've already written it. And I think there's even more of that. Um, at, at one point I have uh, Kat uh, create like a, like a Punisher War Journal style, um, <laughs> like drama journal of, of things that are going on at the school. She's just sitting there, you know, writing this stuff in her little notebook. I, I wasn't sure if you're going there or like murder board with the string for all of the relationships between people. Um, so, uh, you know, you just you just mentioned, uh, you know, Jamie's already working on drawing book two. Uh, it's 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 scripted. You know, when they first said, oh, this could be three books to you you know, were you like, oh, cool, three, you know, three books, that'd be awesome, or like, oh, shit, I gotta do two more of these? Uh, <laughs> you know, like, what, what is your initial reaction when they kind of come back to you and say, oh, you know, let's take what you've, you've already come up with and, like, do a lot more of it? Um, I think it was, it was interesting because in, I'm so used to conceptualizing things as ongoing series, because mm -hmm. it's kind of, I feel like what we've, been trained to do as comic book writers is like 
all right, now, you know, what is, what is this thing? What's the 10th issue of this thing? What's the 20th issue of this thing? What's the 60th issue of this thing? Mm -hmm. um, and when they said, you know, let's, let's do multiple books, and then we're looking at, you know, at least three books, um, I think I was like, all right, so where do I stop? <laughs> um, is this what I, what I needed to figure out is, you know, I think if you have an ongoing series, you can lean on the ongoing nature of it a little bit to like have, oh, you know, a cliffhanger here and a cliffhanger there and a cliffhanger here. Um, you know, make sure something happens every episode, but make sure that you have a reason to come back at the end. Um, and I think with a graphic novel, especially when you're doing a series, you want people to want more, but I feel like there's more of a, a need and uh, it should be more of a desire to be like, all right, and that, that's the end of this book. You can feel like you've had a complete story and then walk out of here satisfied, but there's obviously more in the world to explore. Um, and that's, that's definitely what I wanted to do here is I wanted to solve some of the interpersonal issues and advance the sort of larger sci-fi plot of it um, without sort of like wrapping up the whole, the whole thing nicely with a string at the end. Mm -hmm. um, what do you, you know, work, working on this and, and other stuff, you know, what do you find that you enjoy about working in the graphic novel format versus, you know, the monthly comics? <laughs> The honest answer to that is uh, I can fix screw-ups when I do it this way. Um, I can uh, finagle continuity. Um, if, I, if I get to, you know, what would be issue six of a, a comic book series and think, oh, man, I really should would like to have planted this thing back in issue two. Um, in monthly comics, the issue is already out. There's nothing you could do about that. You know, somebody's drawing issue three, issue two is out while you're writing six. Um, and you got to go with, with what you put in there. Um, whereas with graphic novels, you can get to that, that last page and be like, oh, you know what would be great is if I could call back to this thing that happened earlier, but I'm going to have to seed that better. Um, so, you know, let me go back and, and fix that, do it more consistently. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's the really nice thing about it. Um, the hard thing about it is though just the uh, just the bulk of writing without without seeing anything because it's um, one of the really cool things that happens in doing ongoing series and it happened in uh, the first volume of Wasp a lot is like um, getting art back and saying oh no that's a really neat idea let's explore that more because I'm um, I think one of the things people talk about most in that first series is the, the Nadia's neat science facts. And um, those didn't exist in the original script. Um, but Elsa drew, if you go back and look, there's a page of uh, the giant robot that's running down the street in the first issue where she's done these like cutaways of, of stuff inside the robot where you can see, you know, the, the gears and the joints inside. And, um, I got that page and I was like, this is really interesting. I'm not really sure why she did this, but it makes sense that like, that's how Nadia sees it. Cause Nadia sees the robot and intuitively understands how it works and how to take it apart. Um, and it, I was, I went back and I was like, all right, I'm going to have to do some research on robots uh, so I can <laughs> like make this make sense. 
Um, and so I ended up you know, turning that research into sort of the, the neat science facts in that section, um, which was like both just this, this built this great thing that really, I feel like marks that series is, is unique in a way that uh, I'm really proud of. But also, man, requires a lot more research than writing most stories do. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think I, I benefited a great deal from making friends with some of the scientists that we profiled in the first volume because uh, there were definitely a few times in writing the second volume where I would, you know, grab Tamara or, or somebody else that I profiled and be like, hey, you know science. Is this right? <laughs> like, <laughs> this is what I'm saying happens in this. Does that make sense? Uh, and there were definitely a, a few times where, you know, uh, Tamara specifically was like, what if, what if you say this instead? This is actually right. What you're saying is wrong, but it's not right. This is right. <laughs> so this next thing is kind of like a thing that I, I i'm not i'm not trying to imply causality at all but it's just sort of a thing that i was thinking about um do you feel like the the, the book market is more open to uh diversity in content and characters than the, the standard comics market. And I, I'm asking this because, you know, I'm, I'm reading this book where, you know, three, three lead girls in their, in their human disguises are, are three women of color. And there's, there's panels where there are, are queer makeout sessions and, and it's all great. And, and then, but I'm also, I'm like reading this like two, I, three weeks, like right after another comics gate flare up where I'm like, I, I thought we got rid of these guys like two years ago. Why is this still a thing? And I, I wonder if it's because the relatively small size of the comics community makes it more insular or, or, or something like that. So if something like School for Extraterrestrial Girls were released, you know, that way through the you know, traditional monthly comics market, you know, you, you hear moaning from these uh, very small men uh, about forced diversity or whatever. You know, or or is it because, you know, am I thinking that because I'm not paying as close attention to the book industry, I'm just not seeing it? Does that does that, does that make sense as a question or? Yeah. Um, I think the diff, so, I mean, in my experience, mm -hmm. um, it's going to be long roundabout way of, of coming to this. Um, in my experience, almost all the editors I've worked with in comics have been open to and excited about doing cool and diverse and original stuff and, and mm -hmm. bringing in new things and reaching out to new audiences. Uh, the problem is in a lot of cases, those editors aren't in charge. Um, sure. You know, as, as much as they take the flag for a lot of stuff, they're uh, <laughs> corporations, are these giant faceless beasts that uh, just sort of pass notes down to editors that they then have to give me. Um, you know, that I, I would occasionally get notes on things that are like, oh, corporate doesn't want to do this. Right. It's like, who is corporate? Like, who is, who is giving this note? Can I talk to them? No, you cannot talk to them. It's like, all right, I guess I'm not doing that then. Um, and I think a lot of it is who, who the different markets are listening to, because mm -hmm. I think um, 
I think comic publishers um, in the direct market largely listen to the retailers um, who often listen to their loudest or uh, most customers. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we all know that guy at the comic shop that buys, you know, 10 variants of every Superman comic that comes out. Um, and as much as like that guy shouldn't be determining policy of comics for the rest of time, that guy is also, you know, putting $500 a month into that comic book store's tills. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like they, they are more inclined to listen to that guy than prospective customers. Um, because I, I don't think a lot of comic stores, uh, obviously with some exceptions, see audiences that aren't currently comic book reading audiences as being potential comic book reading audiences. Um, whereas I think booksellers who make graphic novels, whether they be giant publishers like uh, like Macmillan, who you know I'm working with right now on on another series that's been announced, but it's, it's still way out in the future, mm-hmm. um, are looking to get you know, more readers in there. They're looking to get new, new people in there and their stuff is going to, I mean, it, it can go to the comic book shops and the comic book shops order it, but they're much more concerned with booksellers and libraries and teachers yeah. um, who, you know, have direct means by which to request these things from booksellers uh, and whom, you know, Marvel and DC aren't always necessarily listening to. I think there's been an uptick in, um, some of the, the companies paying attention to some of those things. But I mean, I, I referenced doing ALA several times now, and that's it's the American Library Association. It's not every librarian in the country, but it is a huge sampling of librarians from everywhere in the country. And it's the best opportunity to reach the most librarians at any given time. And Marvel does not have a booth there. Um, Disney has a booth there. DC has started doing more stuff there. Um, but I like if I had people ask me about Marvel stuff, I could show them what I had. But uh, and you know Disney may have some of the stuff there, but there's no like Marvel presence to direct people to. And I, I had the experience of of making Unstoppable Wasp, but knowing that book was being canceled um, because of of direct market performance. Well. Being at ALA and having every librarian who I, I told about this book and about doing interviews of female scientists and there being actual science facts and girls in STEM as part of this thing, being so enthused about this thing and having no idea it existed, um, you know, while the comics market apparently doesn't want it. Um, so I, it's it's really interesting to me the different routes that information goes and what it results in. And I'm hoping this new partnership that Marvel has with Scholastic doing middle grades and YA stuff is going to result in them seeing, oh, there is definitely an audience here because, um, I mean, it's it's clear the numbers from this year coming out that, like, graphic novel sales are improving yeah. even while direct market sales, you know, are reportedly going down. Um, like, comics are making more money than they have ever made, and comic book shops are a lot of them are losing money. And that's just, a, a, I think, a, a symptom of how they approach the issue. 
definitely um yeah <laughs> i mean if we know th- nothing about this year we know things are changing but uh uh you've mentioned marvel you're doing a uh a bi-weekly marvel action chillers uh series for uh idw in, in october kind of uh, you know, IDW's all ages Marvel answer to their uh, Star Wars Tales from Vader's Castle uh, specials. Um, what's the, what's the key to making a a kid friendly or all ages friendly scary book? Um, that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> um, honestly, I, I think it's. <laughs> it's it's interesting because I, I think about myself as a as a watcher of horror movies and I, I love horror movies so i um i watch a lot of stuff and i uh i my wife hates it so i have to watch it all alone um and almost all the things that have, have terrified me in movies are things that easily could have occurred in a pg-13 movie um mm even the ones that are in R-rated movies, the things that really bother me are very rarely um, blood and guts and sex. Um, you know, so I, I think there's plenty of room to do creepy and scary and uh, terrifying stuff uh, without having to necessarily go the adult route. Um, you know, I, I do think there's there's room for that, but I think Marvel itself has this sort of rich history of, of horror, um, you know, Tomb of Dracula was a book that came out for a long time and did very well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Marvel has a whole group of monsters that, you know, were, were created throughout the 60s and 70s that, you know, were a big thing for a long time. And, and you know, now are largely sort of punchlines in those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of genuinely creepy stuff in, in Marvel lore. And I, I think it's... Uh, just a question of like pulling that stuff out and, and playing the right notes and um, you know choosing the the right notes to play. And in the case of this, there's a lot of um, sort of classic horror stuff in uh, in the Marvel Chillers book um, because that was you know part of what Marvel wanted. And I also I, I think you know this was the thing with Wasp as well. I like interweaving the elements of like classic Marvel stuff with new Marvel stuff and, and seeing how those two things react and, you know, getting to have, I mean, in this case, uh, Ironheart and, um, you know, Nadia is in an issue of it. Um, and all these other, you know, young characters and getting a chance to sort of, uh, show them off and have fun with them in the context of, um, you know, werewolves and vampires and um you know all the sort of classic scary stuff of the marvel universe is it's a really fun opportunity and it's it's something that uh it's kind of thing i wish we did more of are there are there certain characters that uh that you can talk about i don't want you to spoil anything but uh that you got to play with this time around that you hadn't you know doing wasp or future foundation um let's see there's, I was, I was going through this. So I was trying to figure out what characters in the story I had never written before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I was like, oh, Iron Man is in it. I've written Iron Man a few times. Um, 
you know, Doctor Strange, I think this is the first time I've written any notable amount of Doctor Strange. Um, you know, Ironheart showed up once or twice in Wasp, but uh, I hadn't written a substantial amount of her. She's, um, obviously she's on the cover of the first issue. Um, so of course she's in it. Um, I think issue two, which I just turned in, has uh, two characters in sort of the main spots that I, I haven't uh, written at all before. Uh, one of them being uh, Steve Rogers, um, hadn't written I've written every other Captain America, I feel like, at this point. <laughs> I, I've written Bucky, I've written Sam. Um, but I never, just because of the the time and things that were going on with, with Steve, even the bits of Avengers I got to dip into, there was no you know, Steve Rogers in there. So, um, And he has some, some uh, interesting classic horror stuff in, in his old books as well. Yeah. Um, are, are we getting Cap Wolf Redux? Oh. <laughs> now, Matt, I, he can't. He don't. He, no, no, I, yes, I, I know he can't really say. But oh boy, Cap Wolf! <laughs> I'm a big but, enough. I'm a big enough werewolf nerd that loves me some Cap Wolf. Yeah, uh, the, the second issue has both Cap and uh, I. I'm I'm still waiting on notes on this, but I'm I'm hoping everything sort of turns out to do it the way I wanted to, because a lot of the characters are a bit a bit younger in the IDW version, mm-hmm. and uh, I want to do a uh, a much more teenage Elsa Bloodstone in the story, um, mm. which you know I I love Elsa, um, but I, I think I like the version of Elsa that exists a lot more than the one that existed when she was actually a teenager in the comics, which is a little, um, a little more was coming out the same time as Buffy. (laughs) Mm. Um, the book is, is going to be bi-weekly when it comes out in, in October. What, what kind of, but what kind of timetable, uh, are, are you on and the various artists that you're working with, uh, you know, in making it? Well, the nice thing is, is with, um, the nature of it there, you know, is a horror story in each story and then sort of a book ending story with um, Doctor Strange and uh, Ironheart. Um, and it's nice because we can have a lot of different artists working on stuff at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm doing my best to get scripts done as quickly as possible um, so that everybody can be working and, and get stuff done on a, a, a generous timetable rather than a hectic timetable. Sure. Um, because there's a lot of like great young artists working on this book. Um, if if uh, you look at the article about it, there's like half a dozen artists working on it. Um, yeah. Who are all just, um, we're all amazing. And uh, Sweeney Boo, who is a, a friend of mine that I'm working on another project with, mm-hmm. is doing the covers for it. So um, it's, it's really exciting. I'm, I'm psyched to see it actually come together. Sweeney's been on the show. She was a delight. Yeah, fantastic. Sweeney is great. Um, I'm, I'm hoping we started working on a, a graphic novel a while back, and both of us got uh, very busy at the same time. Um, but I'm hoping it comes back around to us, us getting to do that one. It's, uh, I'm very excited about it. She has just she has the best character designs. She's fantastic at the designing element of characters, especially. Mm-hmm. So, so this might be, probably is, kind of up in the air. Um, but 
is there anything you can tell us about when we'll see the f uh, final arc on Princeless? Um, and if not, that is a perfectly valid answer. I, I have written it. It has been written for a while now. Uh, I think I, I wrote it in volume nine, just about back to back. Um, so it's, it's been in, um, uh, in production for a couple of years now. Um, Emily is, is drawing it. I think she's on the second issue of what will be five. Um, when it comes out, um, she is doing career best work. Both her and Brett, who, who does the coloring on it, are just uh, doing amazing stuff. I know who does the inks is also just turning in some of her best work. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that I, I really wanted to come out. And then every time I go back and look at pages, I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't rush this. Uh, you know, these are, these are really good. Um, I, I wish I could give you a firm date, but between that and the fact that uh, Action Lab has had a couple of shakeups in, in recent months and mm -hmm. some issues that I've I've talked fairly publicly about online, yeah. um, it's, it's pretty difficult to say for sure. Um, yeah, you have been very open about issues with Action Lab and, and especially you know, trying to make sure that your collaborators are being taken care of. Um, you know, did they reach out to you after, after you kind of aired a lot of that out? Um, I mean, they did not in a way that I find to be meaningful. Um, uh -huh. those same people have still not been paid at this point. Um, I'm, you know, they, they had some changeovers both in staff and in business, they also shut down because of uh, of COVID for a few months. Yep. Uh, they didn't actually tell anybody that, including the people working on their books. Um, they did not communicate that in any way, which is a whole problem in and of itself. Um, you know, I there's been a lot of issues uh, with that company in the last couple of years, and um, you know. It, with Princeless being something that is so important to me and so, um, I don't know, career-defining to me, um, seeing as it's the book I started with and it's still going on 10 years later, like, um, it, it's really tough for me because, like, I, I don't want, uh, I don't want things to be bad with Action Lab, but... Um, it's definitely gotten to a point that I can't deny that things are bad with Action Lab, and especially when people who are working on on books that that I'm writing and are and signed on to things with you know good faith in me um, are not getting paid by the company, uh, that really pisses me off. And um, you know, it, it's never my intention to just go out there and, and burn bridges and uh, you know talk bad about people in public, but I think, you know, it's, it's important that people know what's going on because I, I don't want any more people signing on to do things with Action Lab expecting to get paid. And, and um, you know, I, I know because several people have told me that, uh, you know, Princeless has been a reason for people signing on to Action Lab and being excited about working with them because, you know, they saw what, what they did, what we've done with Princeless and thought, 
well, if they're, they're going to do that, that's a company I want to work with. Um, and I, I hate to think that people are coming in with, uh, with that expectation and being met with something very different. I, I definitely hope these things, uh, you know, start to uh, turn around, uh, you know, hopefully sooner uh, rather than later. Um, I, I I hope so too. I have some doubts at this point um, because I, a lot of the people who, you know, founded the company who were there with the company and then sort of uh, came up with the mission of the company have, have left basically uh, everybody that was an original part of it, everybody who's been, um, you know, the sort of driving forces behind the creative side of things is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, has either uh, been been chased out or left because they were not happy with how things were going. Um, so at this point, it's it's much more the people that were interested in the financial side to begin with. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I'd, I'd like to say that they'll make the right choices and do the right things. And um, at the very least, I, I hope if you know things continue to go poorly that uh, I and other people are able to, you know, get their IP back. That would be, that would be ideal because I I would hate to have, you know, Action Lab go down and, and not be able to keep making my books or for other, you know, for other uh, writers and illustrators to not be able to, to find other places to publish their stuff. Certainly. Yeah. Well, um, Let's turn this around. Uh, you know, I, I, a far more uh, lighthearted uh, Twitter thread that I enjoyed from you uh, very recently, uh, where you were pitching a uh, a Team Gambit OGN, uh, where he is not unlike Sean from Boy Meets World, uh, <laughs> take take it in by the Teeves Guild, uh, and then but also you know uh, neighbors with a young Rogan Nightcrawler as step siblings being raised by a uh, kick ass lesbian supervillain couple. Um, I would read that. <laughs> Mystique and yeah. Destiny are my X Men OTP. <laughs> love them. I I love the idea of uh, of an alternate version of the X Men where uh, everything everything that's rough about uh, both Mystique and Destiny's relationship and then Mystique and Nightcrawler's relationship is is not. Um, not so bad for uh, you know for for reasons of either you know the time it was written or the uh, the the times that people were living in uh, at the time. Um, yeah, I, I like the idea of a very of a very twenty twenty X Men. Um, you know where uh, we can see a lot more of the sort of um, we can deal a lot more with the actual things that are being discussed as, uh, um, you know, as through, through the lens of mutants in mm-hmm. comics. You know, it's, I, I, that was going like relating back to my, my own work. Um, mm-hmm. like we were talking about school for extraterrestrial girls and there being, you know, characters who, despite being alien present as, you know, Terra is black and Osako is Japanese and, um, these characters have, they're not all just white, uh, which is a, an unfortunate thing that, I mean, certainly happened in, in early X-Men, um, but has happened in a lot of, you know, sci-fi stuff over time where, uh, you know, the 
the thing, the, the story clearly wants to deal with race or gender or um, sexuality and um, in doing so they entirely throw out those things and just have the metaphor instead. Um, you know, and I think it's important that people of color uh, still be represented in these stories and rather than just being a metaphor because people of color are not a metaphor. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what are you, uh, what are you reading right now? <laughs> um, nothing. Uh, no, um, I, hmm. I, I, I was watching a lot of stuff on vacation, doing my best not to read. Um, but I did also, uh, recently go shopping and, and pick up a bunch of stuff. The only, the only thing I'm actually reading right now is, uh, I recently finished a rewatch of Last Airbender with my uh, daughters and my wife. And uh, some time ago, I bought the library editions of the Gene Luen Yang Last Airbender comics. Um, and uh, we're, I'm slowly working through those with my daughters. That's been our, our bedtime reading recently. Um, so I'm, I'm finally getting to those. But I also... Uh, picked up both the first two trades of Die, um, which I have not gotten around to reading at all, uh, mm -hmm. just, just because of timing. Sure. Um, yeah, because I, I think my, it's funny because I think my response to uh, all of this of 2020 has been to just <laughs> double down on working. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I have, uh, you know, just in this, just during all of this, I've written the second volume of uh, School for Extraterrestrial Girls. I've outlined the third volume. Uh, I have the um, graphic novel series with McMillan I was talking about, which is called The Dog Night, um, which the, um, we've been, the art for the first volume of that is, is coming in, and I've already outlined the second volume of that. I've been working on two screenplays, done the Chillers stuff, done the Ponies stuff, so I'm um, I'm throwing myself into my work. That's how I'm dealing with uh, COVID. So I'm, I'm honestly, it's one of those things that at the point that I'm done working, I'm like, oh, I don't want anything else to do with comics at this point. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to reading uh, Die and, and reading more of Last Airbender at some point. Because I want to want to finish that, what if Last Airbender exists before we jump into Korra when that shows up on Netflix. Well, uh, as we're as we're wrapping up, Jeremy, uh, how can people uh, follow you online and and everything that you uh, have going on as you as you uh, keep working through uh, twenty twenty? <laughs> um, so I'm I'm on Twitter. It's uh, at jrome five eight. So it's j r o m e five eight. Um, I am pretty present on there. I still have a Tumblr, but nobody else is on there, so there's no point in that. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm on Instagram. It's the same as, uh, as Twitter. Um, and then I have a website, uh, which is you know, jeremywhitley.com, which I'm not great at updating, but does have, you know, contact form if somebody does need to, does want to chat about something. Awesome. Jeremy, thanks for coming back on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A and WMQ Comics are now part of the Xavier Files media empire, meaning you can find all our great comics coverage, along with some of the best X-Men and Marvel criticism around, at XavierFiles.com. 
You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at XavierFiles.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. And a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones and Match Club podcasts, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Scott Madrinsky from Mojoswork.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Lan M. from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ Comics and Xavier Files on Twitter and Facebook. And you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you our best content every week in your inbox, plus sneak peeks at what's ahead and an early look at our Sunday editorials. And until next week, in the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln, be excellent to each other. W-N-Q-A.